Hello, and welcome to another episode of X's and Opinions. I'm your host, Ryan Henry, joined alongside my analysts for today, Kali Smith and Ryan Johnson. Before we get started today, guys, how has your day been so far? Yeah, so far it's been great. Uh, so far I've had a great summer, and right now I'm, I can't wait to talk about some sports. So I'm doing good. Yeah, you know, it's been a bit of a long week, but uh, no better way to end it off than with some uh, X's, and opinion with, and X's and opinions with the boys. Excuse me. So uh, I'm excited. It should be a fun episode. Yeah, I feel that, Ryan. Been a long weekend, but we got a lot to talk about. And I'm really excited to get into this. So the main event this week was the NBA free agency. And while there's still some unsigned free agents, including former Lakers guard Dennis Schroeder and Bulls forward Larry Markkinen, a majority of the impactful free agents have locked into deals. So let's start with the Miami Heat, who, after making the 2020 NBA Finals, had a disappointing 2021 season getting swept in the first round. They agreed to sign Kyle Lowry, one of the biggest free agents in this class, to a deal, while also adding P.J. Tucker from the Milwaukee Bucks and Markeith Morris from the L.A. Lakers. What do you guys think of their free agency, and how do the Heat stack up now with the rest of the Eastern Conference? Yeah, the Heat were the most active team on uh, day one on free agency, and it paid off, you know, like you said, signing Lowry, three-year, $85 million deal, uh, averaged 17 points and seven, seven assists uh, this season. You know, extending Jimmy Butler, four-year, $185 million deal, 21.76, six rebounds. You know, not the best three-point shooter, but he actually had a career high, shooting 49% from the field. And paying Duncan Robinson, I thought that was a great deal as well. The most by paying him five-year, $90 million deal, the most by an undrafted uh, undrafted player. Uh, for the past two seasons, he has the most. He had the most uh, three-point field goals field goals made, only behind Buddy Hill and Damian Lillard. And you know, signing P.J. Tucker, who I think was a big part of the Bucks' defense, uh, reliable floor spacer. And they still have Tyler Hero. So I, I think I think Pat Riley has done a great job of revamping the roster after a tough tough season, and I think they're back as legitimate title contenders. Yeah, you know, it was definitely a great offseason from the Heat. Um, that Kyle Lowry deal. Uh, I think there's like some tampering investigation going on with that right now. But uh, assuming that he stays with the Heat, I, I think that's a perfect fit. Um, great passer. And, and I think he should definitely be able to open up the floor a little bit for Jimmy and Bam because I think that they looked a little congested at times uh, last season. Uh, Goran Dragic is pretty good, but. I think Kyle Lowry is definitely a step up for them at point guard at the point guard position. Um, Duncan Robinson, another great re-signing right there. Uh, you know, pretty similar contract at least per year to Joe Harris, I think, and I think that makes a lot of sense because they are very similar players. You know, they they basically just shoot the ball, uh, and they do it extremely extremely well. So uh, I think that's a great re-signing for them uh, moving forward. PJ Tucker, that's a great deal steal from the Bucks, especially because it is from the Bucks. you know that's that's an eastern conference contender it's a rival right there um and he was like Kali said such a big part of their defense especially later on I mean yeah, at times he was guarding Devin Booker in the finals so um just a great great signing right there for them and Markeith Morris you know he, he's a vet yeah they're they're starting to get a little older and, and that's what I like to see they're getting players with some more playoff experience under their belt so um yeah, I think this is a good offseason from them. 
As for if they are title contenders in the East, uh, I don't know. I, I think the Nets are just so good that it's kind of hard for anyone to compete with them right now. But they're looking better than they were last year, and, and that's saying something considering they made the finals last year. Or not last year. You, you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. Yeah, I get what you're saying. And when I looked at this Miami Heat team last year, I was like, this team can go in either two directions. You have some older vets like Jimmy Butler, they Jimmy Butler, Goran Dragic, Bam Adebayo starts establishing, him, establishing himself. But then you had some younger guys like Tyler Hero, Precious Achua, Casey Okpala. And I was like, you have to make a decision one way or another because right now you aren't good enough to be a leap, but you really can't bottom out for a good player. And Pat Riley obviously went with the championship route. He added Kyle Lowry, who, you know, I won the Sixers to get him as a point guard who can basically do everything offensively. He's a team leader. I mean, he's going to fit well with in that Miami culture, like, like they like to describe it. And you guys were talking about P.J. Tucker. I mean, not only does he add something defensively, you poached him from one of your main rivals. And also, they managed to keep nearly every one of their own free agents, with the exclusion being Kendrick Nunn, who was kind of out of the rotation for most of, like, last season. So it's not that huge. I think the big thing, one of the big things you guys really didn't mention was the Victor Oladipo re-signing. I know he's been hurt the past couple of seasons, but to get him on a minimum contract, that is an absolute steal if he can – play and you have a starting lineup of Larry Oladipo Jimmy Butler maybe Duncan Robinson or PJ Tucker at the four and then bam I think that's pound for pound one of the best starting fives in the league and I think they really came out here as one of the best as one of the winners of this free agency period just because they got so much good players while also retaining all their own free agents sticking to a excuse me speaking of another disappointing team from last season let's talk about the LA Lakers they were riddled with injuries, especially in the later part of the season as LeBron and AD both both missed significant time and only got the seventh seed and eventually lost to the Phoenix Suns in the first round. And they started this offseason with a bang by trading for Russell Westbrook. But in free agency, they completely ho- overhauled their entire supporting cast by signing seven free agents in Kendrick Nunn, Kemp Bazemore, Carmelo Anthony, Trevor Reza, Malik Monk, Wayne Ellington, Dwight Howard. Obviously, the big question about this roster is their age, which averages to almost to over 30 years 30 years old do you think the Lakers can trust these guys come playoff time like are they going to break down or do you think the the Lakers will reestablish themselves as contenders yeah like you said the Lakers had a terrible uh, playoff run you know they got knocked out by the Suns in the first round but I can tell with the moves that they made they're trying to be the oldest team in NBA history to win a ring but I, I think they've made some some good moves to go deeper in the West, you know, signing Russell Westbrook. We know what he can do. Triple double monster. Uh, you know, initially when Westbrook was acquired, everyone was talking about, you know, the floor spacing would, would not work given that Westbrook and LeBron aren't the greatest shooters. So, you know, they got, they got some shooters, Trevor Ariza, Wayne Ellington, Carmelo Anthony. I mean, they're not the best shooters, but they do a, a solid job of shooting the ball from three. Um, they signed Dwight Howard who took a one-year hiatus to join join the team for the third time. And they, they have some good youth on this team. Taylor Horton Tucker, he, who came back. Uh, Malik Monk, Kendrick Nunn, like you said, I think he's going to be an X factor for this team. But all in all, I think injuries are a thing that could plague this team, especially with older players who don't have the cleanest record when it comes to staying injury-free, although they are fair, fairly durable given their age. Uh, I think that could potentially hold them back when they make a deep playoff run. But I I really don't think age will play a factor 
since I don't think the older guys aren't aren't going to be relied on that much. I, I think actually performing well will be a factor for all the players. So if the older guys don't you know perform well, I think the youth and the big three, Russell Westbrook, LeBron, Anthony Davis, I think they'll have to step up on both ends of the floor if they want to you know win a ring this upcoming se- season. You know, I think you guys are being a little harsh on my Lakers right now, calling them the most one of the most disappointing teams because it's not really their fault. You know, they, they can't control the injuries that they had. But, um, you know, I, I'm pretty happy with this offseason, to be honest. I think trading for Russell Westbrook was a move that needed to be done to – or for at least for a third star to try and compete with a team like the Nets who are just so stacked. But um, – and, and I think they filled out the rest of the roster pretty well. Uh, considering the circumstances because they so much of their cast base was taken up by those three players. So, I mean, getting Melo, Trevor Reza, Wayne Ellington, Malik Monk, all these guys on minimum deals, I think that's very, very good. Very, very good right there from Rob Palenka. And Dwight Howard, I'm super happy with that addition. Uh, Andre Drummond just did not work out. And, and Dwight Howard has proven uh, with Anthony Davis and LeBron James that he can work in a system with them. You know, we saw in 2020 – we won the championship with him on the team. And he was a big contributor to that. Um, him and JaVale, they kind of had that Twin Towers thing going. So maybe if AD and uh, Dwight can replicate that a little bit, we might see some of the same success. The floor spacing does concern me a little bit because we don't really have one defined shooter. I, I know that a lot of these guys that we just signed, like Wayne Ellington, Malik Monk, Kent Bazemore, they can shoot it a little bit. But it's not like... We have one guy that is our, our defined shooter on the court. You know, it's not like the Nets with Joe Harris or the Heat with Duncan Robinson or a team like that, where they have one guy that they can go to and they'll, they'll knock down shots more often than not. Um, so that does concern me a little bit, but I, I'm pretty happy with the moves that we've made. And in terms of age, you know, they're just going to have to rest a lot during the season, I think. Uh, they might have to lean someone on a little bit more on their younger guys throughout the year um, to try and make it through this 82 game stretch, but come playoff time, if they're healthy, I think they'll be ready for uh, a deep playoff run. Yeah. I, I remember when the, the Lakers first made this Russell Westbrook trade, I was a bit puzzled because looking at the roster, you know, LeBron and AD work together when you have at least some floor spacing around them and the Lakers had some floor space from the 2020 season and, It really didn't establish last year. And then you're adding Russell Westbrook, another ball dominant player who can't shoot. And I really was puzzled by that. I'm still not a hundred percent sold on the deal, but with a lot of these signings, like Wayne Ellington, Kent Bazemore, Trevor Rizzo, Mello, Malik Monk, just pure shooters around him. I think it's a lot better now in context to what else the Lakers have done. And it's interesting, Ryan, because you mentioned that, Oh, I don't know if the Lakers have a defined shooter. Wayne Ellington might be one of the best shooters the Lakers have had in years. I mean, he shot over 40% last season on six attempts, which is among the league best. And he's been a high 30 shooter his entire career. So he's going to come in day one, at least knock down shots at a very efficient rate. And then you add bench scoring like Carmelo Anthony, Kent Bazemore can get you a bit scoring off the bench. And Malik Monk, I think is going to be a real interesting X factor for this team because while he hasn't gotten all the touches he wants in Charlotte, I still think there's, some shot creation ability that we haven't been able to see. And so he can really maybe elevate this team as a nice fourth guy. And I think they are going to come back into form and become one of the best team, uh, best teams in the league. And 
Ryan, I kind of agree with you saying that they kind of got screwed by injuries, but that's just a matter of the fact. And I think they're going to have a bounce back season from last year. I think they'll be the best team in the West, maybe second best behind the Clippers, but I think they should really experience a nice bounce back season. And with all these supporting players around LeBron AD, I think they will have a run for their money come playoff time. The one move that really bothered me or about the Lakers this offseason was Alex Crusoe. I think they should have re-signed him over Taylor Horn Tucker. My opinion, I just think his timeline fits better and also his skill set as a defender as, as a shooter next to LeBron and AD, but I still think they overall had a great offseason and it should be exciting for them next season. Okay, so another big player in this year's free agency was the Chicago Bulls. After being mediocre for the better part of five years, they made splash after splash in this offseason. They added DeMar DeRozan, Lonzo Ball, Alex Caruso, and Tony Bradley to complement their already established all-stars in Zach Levine and Nikola Vucevic. Now, although there are some questions when it comes to the bench, the starting five of Lonzo, Levine, DeRozan, Patrick Williams, and Nikola Vucevic should be a very exciting and productive unit all around. So do you guys think the Bulls are back? Or do you just think the top teams in the East, like Milwaukee, Brooklyn, Philly, Miami, are just significantly better? And you think this team is just capped off at like a second round exit? You know, when when the Bulls acquired Vucevic from the Magic, Magic during the trade deadline, I knew the Bulls were really going to overhaul this whole roster and maximize their success with Levine, who's going to be an unrestricted free agent after this season. And although they didn't make the play-in last season, I, I don't think that was a huge flop, given that their ultimate goal was to transform this this team in the offseason. But, you know, when you look at this team, it, it just looks like a lot of talent that could have the biggest drop or the biggest boom in the conference. You know, Nikola Vucevic, underrated top five center. Uh, Lonzo Ball, we know what he can do. Great for him perimeter defender. Uh, I think he's turned himself into a great floor spacing threat, shooting 38% from the uh, three. Uh, I think he's most likely going to function as a spot up shooter, uh, which he thrived with that with, uh, with the Pelicans. Uh, they also signed DeMar DeRozan, which honestly surprised me. But, you know, one thing I think he can contribute is getting to the free throw line. You know, this season, he shot 7.2 free throw attempts, something that the Bulls really need, struggling to get at the foul line. And Alex Caruso, you know, underrated signing, great defender, like you mentioned. So no one can really deny that the Bulls, you know, improved. But I think Billy Donovan, you know, head coach, will have to play a huge role in how this team mesh meshes defensively. And Patrick Williams, a sophomore, you know, he's probably going to have to guard the team's best player. So I, I really think that the Bulls are a sneaky threat. I, I think they're definitely going to make the playoffs. Uh, on paper, they're, they're a good team. But overall, I think this team has done a, a fantastic job of leveraging their future and maximizing what they can do now rather than waiting on things to happen. Yeah, it was definitely a prolific offseason for the Bulls, to say the least. Um, Margaret Rosen was a big signing for sure. I'm not sure if I agree with you, Kali, that Vucevic uh, is a top five center in the league, but he, he's definitely up there for sure. He, he's a great player, especially offensively. 
just so, so skilled in the paint. Um, but I don't know. I don't think that they can really compete with uh, the upper echelon of the East right now. And um, I, I especially feel bad for Lonzo Ball because I think the DeMar DeRozan signing screwed him over just a little bit because um, if it was just him and Zach Levine, he would have had a lot more of the ball. He would have been more of a primary option, primary ball handler. But for now, it it's going to be a little strange to see where he fits in. I, I'm not sure exactly where he's going to fit in. I don't think he's going to have as much opportunities to shoot just because Zach Levine and DeMar DeRozan are much more ball dominant. So it could take away from his development at least a little bit. Um, and I'm sad to see that things didn't really work out with Larry Marketing there. I think he's going to go elsewhere in free agency. But um, they're definitely looking much improved as a team as a whole. So uh, second round exit, I, I think, is kind of likely, actually. I, I, I would not be surprised at all if that happened. Um, they, they're much improved this offseason. But in terms of competing with someone like the Bucks or the Nets or even the team like the Sixers, really, um, I, I don't think that they are there right now. I, I don't. I don't see it happening. Yeah, I mean, I like what they did in the off season, especially with the Demar Derozan and Lonzo Ball signings. I think those two have been kind of the more underappreciated players over this past season, and they really didn't get talked about. But like you said, this team, the e top of the East is just so good. I mean, you have the Bucks who just won the championship. The Nets have the most talented big three in NBA history, and even the Sixers, for as disappointing as they are, they have a top five to ten player in the league along with, you know, two other fringe all-stars. So it's hard to get to that level. And when they made the Vucevic trade back in March or whenever the trade deadline was, I was like, I really don't get the point of this because Vucevic doesn't get you over the top, plus you're sacrificing your future with Zach Levine on your roster who could leave next offseason. But I like what they did with the Alex Caruso and Lonzo Ball signings. I think they can work as complementary off-ball pieces Ryan, I agree with you that, like, I think I would have liked Alonzo Ball in a more ball-dominant role, but we saw in New Orleans with Zion and Brandon Ingram on the team, he still was able to get his to a certain extent, especially in catch and shoot. So it'll be interesting to see how he fits there. And the only way I could see this team, like, elevating themselves to that, like, elite echelon of Eastern Conference teams is if Patrick Williams suddenly develops into an elite offensive player. I like him as a prospect, but I'm not entirely sure he's just on that trajectory just yet. I mean, he is only a rookie after all, and especially if he's going to be a fifth, sixth option on the team, I, I find that very unlikely, but you really never know. But at least the Bulls got themselves out of the cellar, and I know Bulls fans are at least excited that they have something to look forward to instead of, you know, what they had in the past five seasons with, you know, campaign and the tank, what they were doing. So at least they have something going, but I truly don't think they're going to get past the second round unless they somehow get a really lucky draw or something happens. So going to Lonzo's former team, the New Orleans Pelicans, their all season has really been puzzling to say the least. They did get off of Eric Bledsoe and Steven Adams's contracts, but they had to give up two first round picks and only acquired Jonas Valanciunas, who is a good, but not great player. And they also let Lonzo ball walk and replaced him with Devonte Graham, a high volume shooter who really adds nothing else to value when he isn't on. So, so with the reports going that, so with the reports coming out that Zion has grow, grown frustrated with management, I believe this is a complete blunder by GM David Griffin. So what do you guys think of what the Pelicans have done? And, you know, are we going to see a reality that Zion Williamson is going to request a trade within the next year or two? 
Yeah, I agree with you. I think they've had a, a weird offseason. You know, reports were tied uh, to Lonzo Ball, Lonzo Ball and the Bulls during the trade deadline. Uh, so I knew that Bulls had a pretty good chance to get Ball in the offseason, which they did. Um, and then in early early July, Sham Sharenia, uh, the Pelicans, he said the Pelicans were unlikely to match an offer for Ball. So, uh, you know, they were going to pursue pursue other point guards like Kyle Lowry. So, you know, they, they cleared some cap space and, you know, they made some seemingly good moves. You know, like you said, traded Steven Adams, uh, Eric Bledsoe, got back Jonas Valachunas. But, you know, less than five minutes into free agency, you know, Bulls, Bulls offered Lonzo four-year four year $85 million deal. Um, you know, Lowry signed with the Heat, three-year $85 million deal. And I think I think the Bulls got Lonzo Ball for a steal, giving up Sadoransky, Garrett Temple. Um, like you said, they signed Devontae Graham, but I don't know how he's going to pair with Valachunas, given he's just a volume scorer, not really a distributor. Um, and since Lonzo Ball was a restricted free agent, you know, they could have just matched the offer and paired him paired him alongside Williamson. But a couple months ago, Williamson Williamson said that, you know, he, he liked to play with Ball in New Orleans. And, you know, reports also came out that he's that his family's unhappy with the organization and how they've they've handled the situation in New Orleans. So if you have his family, you know, telling maybe telling him negative stuff, I think as an organization, uh, Pelicans have done bad this free agency, and I don't think it was a step in the right direction for them. Yeah, you know, I mean, if, if Zion's family and Zion aren't happy in New Orleans, that's how you know something's going wrong, because that should be your only priority uh, if you're a part of N New Orleans management. <laughs> Just keep him happy at this point. Maybe Brandon Ingram, too. It, it seems like they're trying to go super young, because looking at their roster, they only have like two players over the age of 30. But they just let their good young point guard in Lonzo Ball walk for, for the Bulls. So I don't know. I, I mean, Devontae Graham is a lot less hit on the cap. He's four-year, $47 million deal instead of Lonzo's four-year, $85 million deal. But I feel like Lonzo would have been worth the money because he just fits so much better uh, alongside Ingram and, and Williamson because he doesn't really need to shoot the ball as much as those guys do or as much as Graham does because like you said Ryan Graham is a really a volume scorer he, he was that with the Hornets and it's going to be difficult for him to replicate that in my eyes uh, with the Pelicans just because there's other players that are already established in the organization that get the ball Zion and Brandon Ingram and I don't think that those guys are going to want to let off let up the, their touches for Devontae Graham too much so, um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe they're moving more towards Kira Lewis Jr., who, quite frankly, did not have the best rookie season last year. He only shot like 38% from the field. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, they got Brandon Boston, who's got a lot of potential in, in this year's draft. But I, I just don't really know what they're doing as a franchise. I, I That Alonzo Ball, letting him walk was a huge mistake in my eyes. And I, and I definitely would have kept him over Devontae Graham. Yeah, and it's you guys both mentioned it. Like the reports were out for <clears throat> were out for like weeks, and this kind of has to deal with the tampering situation you mentioned earlier. How Lonzo Ball wasn't going to re-sign with the Pelicans, and I, even though I expected it not to happen, it was still like disappointing that it didn't because 
like you said, Lonzo Ball just fits so seamless with this team. He has the floor spacing ability. He's really improved his jump shot since coming into the league. He can play without the ball in his hands, but he can also play with the ball in his hands. And you replace him with Devontae Graham, who needs the ball in his hands, struggled in Charlotte last season with two ball-dominant players, and doesn't add nearly the same defensive value or playmaking value that Lonzo Ball does. And your number one goal, if you're the Pelicans, is to keep Zion happy. And thinking how they essentially just got gift-drafted an amazing young team two years ago with the Anthony Davis trade and the Zion Williamson lottery, it's just crazy that within the next two to three years, it might all crumble away. And we're going to be saying how the Charlotte or not the Charlotte Horns, the new Orleans Pelicans are restarting from square one once again. And they've once again, wasted the talents of another generational player. And it's just, it's just sad because, you know, you never want to see these guys just wither their primes away while management is doing little or little to nothing to really improve their roster. So hopefully they can kind of figure their way out of this, but Seeing what's going on right now, I really don't trust David Griffin and management up uh, down there. So going to the New York teams, let's first start with the New York Knicks. After making it to the playoffs for the first time since 2013, the Knicks have had key had key free agents to address this offseason, and their plan was more or less to just run it back. I mean, in addition to – they did manage to keep Derek Rose, Nerlens Noel, and Alec Burks, but they also added – Kemba Walker and Evan Fournier, two guards who should help their stagnant offensive problem. Do you guys like what they did this offseason, or do you think they're really just locking into a core who maybe had a one-off fluke season and are going to be stuck like this for the next two to three seasons? Yeah, you know, initially I kind of doubted the Knicks. You know, they haven't been able to land that franchise player that they always wanted. You know, they missed out on Katie and Kyrie. Uh, last season Uh, but this year they cleared up cap space and and they were in trade rumors for Chris Paul and Kyle Lowry but they went to uh, other teams Kyle Lowry to the Heat Chris Paul staying with the Suns so the only thing they could do was sign free agents free uh, you know their free agents Derrick Rose which was a huge priority for them really improved their team Uh, Alec Burks Nerlens Noel uh, and then they, they got Fournier, four-year, $78 million deal, who, you know, obviously he's a great floor spacer, a scoring threat, someone that the Knicks lacked during the series against the Hawks. Uh, they lost Bullock, but I think Fournier is a better player. Uh, and, you know, they, you know, after that, they got Kemba Walker, which was a cheap deal after he got bought out by the, uh, the Oklahoma City Thunder. and you know, they made another move extending Julius Randle four-year, $117 million deal, which I think could turn out to be an underpay if he performs, you know, 80, 85% at an all-star level. And I don't think they really gave up a lot of draft picks. So I think Knicks were finally aggressive, even though they didn't get that franchise player uh, you know, rather than drafting players and hoping you get that franchise player, I think Knicks, Knicks actually made a leap in this offseason. I think, I think they've definitely improved during this offseason. Yeah, you know, I'm very, very high on this Knicks offseason. You know, I mean, let's just talk about Kemba Walker real quick. All right. Dude averages 20 points per game for his career. He has one injury, one really bad injury, that, cor- that torn quad tendon. 
and now they're they're signing him for eight million a year. Eight million a year? Are you kidding me? Kemba Walker for eight million a year? Like the, he easily could have gotten 15, 16 million a year. Like that, I think that should be his market rate. He's a four-time All Star, and, and he averaged twenty-five a game in his last season in Charlotte, and then he went to Boston. Obviously, he didn't get the ball quite as much because he had to share it with Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, but. You're signing this dude for eight million. Like, how can you not like that? Like, even if he is an injury risk, injury concern, whatever you want to call it, I mean, it's not even a big hit to the cap if he gets injured because he's only making eight million a year. It's not like they're signing the dude for 20, 25 million a year. Like, their salary cap management this offseason has been so good. And I mean, the re signing of Derrick Rose was great. Um, they really addressed their point guard issue this offseason because Alfred Payton is not a starter for he can't be a starter for that Knicks team if they want to go far in the playoffs I think Kemba Walker the absolute perfect signing I don't think they could have gotten a better signing especially for the rate that they got him at and um, Evan Fournier I mean we saw what he did to Team USA in the Olympics when he's really on like he is really really on like he he can shoot it with the best of them Uh, the only real issue I have with this this Knicks team right now is sort of their backcourt defense because Kemba Walker, Evan Fournier, Derrick Rose, at this stage in their careers, none of them are very good defenders. I mean, Kemba Walker was never that great on defense. It it remains to be seen how good he'll be after uh, coming back from this torn quad tendon. So um, if they come up against a team like the Hawks again in the playoffs, Trey Young might go for 50 a game just because they won't have anyone guarding him. They might have to go to like Miles McBride or uh, Quentin Grimes, their draft picks, who are both great defenders in college but it remains to be seen how they'll do on defense in the nba but um no i as a whole i'm extremely happy with how the knicks handled this offseason uh i was a bit questionable after the draft because i i wasn't a huge fan of the draft but their free agency has been excellent absolutely superb yeah i mean i don't think you can go wrong with their philosophy of trying to run it back i mean we talked a bit about the bulls and how they were kind of like stagnating and being mediocre for the, for five years. I mean, the Knicks haven't been good, excluding a couple of years with Carmelo Anthony since like we were alive. So it makes sense in theory to like say, hey, you know, we made the playoffs. We were the fifth seed. Let's just retain everyone we can. You you bring back Nerns who's a key defender. Alec Burks, who's a nice score off the bench. Obviously, Derek Rose, we who we know about. And when I was watching the Hawks Knicks series last year or this past season, the main thing that stuck out to me was like, I know how good the Knicks are defensively but they had absolutely zero offense because if Julius Randle wasn't hitting these difficult mid-range step-back jumpers, it was like, who was the ball going to? I mean, Derrick Rose did well, but outside of him, it was like no one could score on this team. And I'm a bit hesitant on the Kemba Walker signing. I, you know, he's on the other side of 30 and he does have the injury concerns, like you said, but for $8 million, $8 million a year, it's not a horrible contract. The Evan Fournier deal, I'm, I'm a bit more concerned about because, you know, he's a very – He's not a star or even all-star caliber player, and you're signing him to almost 20 mil a year. And for four years, a lot can change in that time span. So that might be something that can hurt him in the back. But for what GM Leon, Leon Rose was like planning out during the season, I think, or for this offseason, I think he did well. And, you know, the Knicks should still be an exciting team this off this next season. I don't know if they'll be as good, but I think their idea to run it back, especially given how successful they were last season, I kind of agree with what they did. So moving to the Brooklyn Nets, a lot of their free agents were, they didn't really have a lot of free agents. I mean, most of them were 
supporting pieces such as Bruce Brown, Blake Griffin, Jeff Green, and Spencer Dinwiddie, who's kind of like an outlier, but they were able to keep Brown and Griffin, but they let Jeff Green and Spencer Dinwiddie walk, replacing them with Patty Mills and James Johnson. Now, I know they had, they were kind of pressed up against the cap with their big three of KD, Kyrie, and James Harden, and they, the core is still intact with KD getting an extension. Were you guys satisfied with Brooklyn, Brooklyn's free agency, or do you think, you know, they could have done a bit more? Yeah, uh, I, I think the Nets are still at the top of the East, you know, granted that they stay injury-free, but I, I think they did a good job replacing key pieces that left in uh, free agency. Spencer Dinwiddie, you know, he had a breakout year two seasons ago, but, you know, he was injured this season, and they didn't really need him given that this roster is stacked with talent. They lose Landry Shamit. You know, he's a great shooter, but they add Patty Mills, a career 38% uh, three-point shooter, someone who has championship experience. They keep Blake Griffin on a one-year deal. He showed flashes of his former self. Um, Bruce Brown comes back, great defender. Uh, Jeff Green was probably their toughest loss, given that he, he gives a huge spark off the bench. And they had decent draft picks. Cameron Thomas, who's going to provide some instant offense off the bench and Dayron Sharp, you know, he, he knows how to run the floor. So we said last year how their, their defense would take a hit. But when I look at, when I look at this team, I, th I believe offensively, they're just too strong and it plugs major holes in their defense. And I think they could make the finals this upcoming season, given that they stay injury free. Uh, I think Kelly broke it down really, really well right there. I mean, there's not a whole lot that you can do to mess up this team. They're just, they've got so much talent that you would, <laughs> I don't even know how you could mess up that, that big three, but they, they re-signed Blake Griffin, obviously great, great deal there. Um, you know, getting Patty Mills, I think he's a great replacement for Spencer Dinwiddie because he's a more willing passer. Uh, and, and quite frankly, the Nets don't need any more scoring, you know, especially in the guard position, they've got Kyrie Irving and James Harden. And Spencer Dinwiddie just seemed a little unnecessary, uh, almost. So uh, getting getting rid of him, that I'm I'm not mad at it at all. Um, Daron Sharp, I'm really high on that trade for him because they didn't draft him. I think they traded for him. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's literally their second center on the roster. It's DeAndre Jordan and then Daron Sharp. Uh, that's all of their centers. So I, I think. If the Nets decide to go more traditional, which we have seen them go to small ball in the past, but if they decide to go traditional, I think he should be getting some playing time. And Cameron, Cameron Thomas can light it up, man. Dude averaged 23 points per game as a freshman. Like, that is crazy. And he is like Oak Hill's all-time scoring record. Mello went to Oak Hill. Carmelo Anthony went to Oak Hill, the same high school, and, and Cameron Thomas has more points than him there. So, no, I think they added some good pieces in the offseason then. They, they should definitely be the number one contenders in the East. I, I think they are – everyone should be gunning for them, even the Bucks who just won the championship. Yeah, it's crazy because, you know, while they did lose Spencer Dinwiddie and Jeff Green, I mean, I think for more Spencer Dinwiddie, his role just didn't seem as apparent, especially with the money he was asking for. And he was out for most of last season, and they kind of succeeded without him. And then Jeff Green, while he does provide value as a small ball five, and he was huge for them playing small ball five, I think you can rely on James Johnson to provide maybe a similar role, not to a, uh, maybe not to the same degree. And then you still have Nick Claxton on your roster. And Ron, you mentioned, I like the Dayron Sharp pickup for them as well. I think given where, you know, I like the draft day trade they made for him. And then Cam Thomas, I mean, like you said, that guy is an absolute bucket to get him at 
what was it, pick 23 they had him at, or 27, which is just insane. I mean, even if he's, like, not even, like, at it, if he comes out of the gate and can get you, like, 14 off the bench for the for the Nets, that's going to be huge. And I love the Patty Mills signing for them. He's a veteran guy who's won, who's won championships with San Antonio. He's a nice three-point shooter, so he can play. He doesn't need the ball in his hands to succeed. And like you guys said, the, the Nets should be the favorites this season. I mean, even with Kyrie Irving out and James Harden on one hammy, they were, like, two inches away from beating the Milwaukee Bucks and we're, we're not even maybe even having this discussion. So they should be the front runners to win. As long as, ever, as long as the big three just stays healthy, they should, you know, be the favorites to come out of the East and even win the NBA finals. And I, and I like what they did despite losing Jeff Green and Spencer Dinwiddie. So to just round out this discussion, I want you guys to quickly give me your winners and losers of this free agency period. Uh, one winner, I would probably say the Jazz. You know, they did a great job of keeping Mike Conley. Um, they signed Rudy Gay, versatile defender, floor spacer. So if you look at that team, Mitchell, Gobert, Ingles, Clarkson, uh, I placed them as finishing number one in the Western Conference. And if I would say a loser, I would probably have to say the Timberwolves. I don't think I don't think they've they've had any draft picks in this year's NBA draft. And I don't think they've made any moves and you know, they're just leaving great young talent to waste. Anthony Edwards, Carl Anthony Towns, D'Angelo Russell. And I think one of the main problems for this team is they, they really have no plan. I think that what, what separates them from the Bulls, you know, where people may criticize their free agency signings. At least they have a plan to win now. You know, Timberwolves, I don't think they have a plan. I think they're they're one of the – they just honestly did bad in this year's free agency. You know, I'm going to go for my winner. I'm going to go with the team we already talked about in the New York Knicks, because I, like I said, I'm really high on their off season. I think they had a great off season. Kemba Walker in my eyes couldn't have had a better signing right there for how cheap they got him. They have been Fournier. I think you're underrating him a little bit, Ryan. I mean, the dude's averaged near 20 points per game for the past like five seasons. So, uh, I think that he's another half-decent signing. Should add some good scoring in there. Um, yeah, I mean, they got kept all the players they needed to. Nerlens Noel, Derek Rose. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy with how their offseason went. And uh, in terms of losers, I mean, if I can mention a player, I'd say Dennis Schroeder <laughs> because his offseason was just disastrous. You know, he signed, rejected that multi-year $84 million extension. What was it? Five years, $84 million uh, from the Lakers. And now he is currently unsigned. No one, no one really wants him right now. So, uh, yeah, kind of a disastrous move from him. Uh, I don't know why he was so adamant on wanting $100 million plus. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that that was quite a mistake. And he might be playing for close to the minimum next year if, if he doesn't get on the team soon. Yeah, the Dennis Schroeder signing should be very interesting to see how the rest of the market responds because I've only heard reports saying that maybe – Boston is interested, but I they don't have the money to give him that $100 million extension. So it'll be interesting to see how he plays out. I think he was a bit slandered a bit too much last season. I mean, I know he was not that great in the playoffs, but in the regular season, especially when LeBron and AD were out, he did provide some value. So if I'm going to go with the winner, winners and losers, I'll go with the winners first. I talked about We talked about them earlier. I think the Miami Heat took easily the biggest jump out of any team last season. They went from a team who 
was just above 500, you know, got swept in the first round to a potential Eastern Conference Finals contender. They they added Kyle Lowry, who's one of the best free agents in this upcoming class. They poached P.J. Tucker away from one of their rivals, and they kept all their key free agents. So I think they easily made the biggest jump out of any team. And if I'm going to go with a loser, I'm going to go with the Philadelphia 76ers. I know they didn't have the most cap space to work with, but they still have Ben Simmons on their roster, and it appears as though he's probably going to be on their roster for at least the start of this season, I feel like. In free agency, they only added George's Niang, which he's a good shooter, but he really isn't a game changer. They lost Dwight Howard, so their backup five situation – well, they did add Andre Drummond, but, you know, like you said, he really struggled last season for the Lakers, and how is he going to pair with this group? I, I don't know. And for a team that had so many question marks going into this offseason, they really just struck out. And I don't know what their ceiling is. I mean, it probably is going to be a second-round exit again. But for a team that has a top-five player, top-five, ten player on their team, they really just struck out and missed on a lot of key free agents that other rivals stole from them. Shifting to the MLB, we are now entering the dog days of summer where the playoff race is really starting to heat up and – the two New York teams are just going in completely different directions right now. Just a few weeks ago, it looked like as though the Mets were going to win the NL East easily. The Braves lost Ronald Acuna. The Phillies kept really tripping over themselves. And the Nationals were liquidating all movable assets besides from Juan Soto. But now the Mets sit in third place after being swept by the Philadelphia Phillies this weekend and now sit two and a half games behind the Phillies for first place. I just got to ask, what happened to this team? What happened to the team that made them skid? this badly you know i i think they i think the mets went big at the trade line you know getting javier the trade deadline getting javier Baez, who replaces uh lindor until he comes back from an injury um i think they needed that offensive boost but you know Baez has been inconsistent um frankly this whole team has been inconsistent all year you know with having advantageous opportunities to score um, DeGrom, another player who's out, you know, hasn't played since I think early July uh, due to elbow tightness. So I think they're going to need that type of pitching. They want to finish at the top of the uh, NL East. But, you know, they I think they just struggled all season, you know, with clutch hitting. Um, I think they've lost their last three series. Um, they're all, all in all, they're not a good hitting team. But I, I don't I don't think you can really count this team out. I think they've won uh, a lot of games late in season. But, you know, like I said, DeGrom was a big hit for them. And I think they just got swept by the Phillies. So it's going to be really tough to finish at the top of their division. Yeah, you know, I, I just think the bats just really went silent for them because, I mean, looking at their recent games, they literally haven't had a game where they scored over five runs since July 21st. So they just can't get anything going in the batter's box, it seems like. Um, I, you know, like you said, Carly, they, they try to get Baez to try and get the bats going a little bit, but it, it just hasn't worked out so far. And it's going to need to if they want to try and get back in this race for the NL East because I, I don't think whoever comes in second is going to be a wild card contender. So, um, yeah, it's just not looking too good for them. They're 2-8 and eight in their last 10. It's just it's looking rough. They they they're really on the the back end right now. I, I'm not sure they're gonna make the playoffs anymore. 
Yeah, I mean, the the offense was always a question because it always felt so inconsistent. But like you said, this past like week or two, it's just gone dead silent. And they're in their silly their series against the Phillies, they scored five runs in three games, which you're not gonna win baseball games doing that. If you look at their team stats, the only like consistent power hitter on the team is Pete Alonso. They tried bringing in Javier Baez to help out the deadline, but he, it's been a mixed bag. He's had he helped them win a couple of games, but he's still batting under 200 and actually just got hurt today. So he might be out for an extended period. They don't have Francisco Lindor. And when you look at the remaining schedule, it's going to be very tough to see how this team goes moving forward. And they play the Giants and Dodgers to end the season. And I'm not really sure they can get themselves back in the first place. And that's what they need to do to win this division. It's looking scary, but I just don't think they have it in them. They just got bad at the wrong time. So going to the better New York team, the Yankees have been on fire since the beginning of July, winning eight of their nine last eight of their last nine series with most of them being against playoff slash playoff contending teams. Now, despite that, they're still in third place with the Blue Jays being only a half a game behind them. Can you guys see the Yankees snagging a wild card spot or even potentially winning the division? Yeah, that's tough. I think injuries really hurt this team early early in the season. Aaron Judge and uh, John Carlos Stanton, Stanton, you know, being injured. And COVID has actually been a factor this year. I know uh, Gary Sanchez is out for the next 10 days with COVID. Um, Anthony, Anthony Rizzo was just placed on the COVID IL this year. Uh, today, actually. Um, so I expect the Yankees to finish at the top of their division. Uh, you know, especially with that all-star caliber talent. But, you know, they they got a big, you know, during the trade deadline, you know, acquiring Joey Gallo, Anthony Rizzo, and they got tremendously be- better, you know, having a winning streak. So I, I think it's going to be tough, but I think they have a chance to get past Boston for a second in the uh, AL East. But um, if they can keep their momentum, I think they're like 8-2 and two in their last 10 games especially with the pinching with Clay Holmes this, this late in the season, I definitely think they can make the wild card. Yeah, you know, it's going to be tough for them to pass the Rays because the Rays have been just great. They've been really consistent all season long, and they're, they're also hitting their stride at the same time as the Yankees are. But the Red Sox are looking very vulnerable right now. You know, they're 2-8 they're and eight in their last 10. They're really, really struggling. And I think it's going to come down to these series later on in the season, they're coming up against the Red Sox two more times, then they're coming up against the Rays to finish out the season. And they haven't beat the Red Sox in a series at all. I think they got swept the last couple of times they, they played them in a series. So um, if they can beat the Red Sox, I definitely can see them sneaking into that wild card spot. But I don't think they can catch up to the Rays at this point. I think the Rays are, are just a bit ahead of the rest of the division, especially with how well they've been playing as of late. It's going to be really difficult for the Yankees to pass them. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how how likely it is they can ma- win the division given how far behind they are. I mean, they're six and a half games back with just under two months left. And especially like you were saying, the Rays have been hot as well. They've won eight of their last 10 and on our four-game win streak. And – I think they could easily get the second wild card spot because like you said, Ryan, the Boston Red Sox have just been so vulnerable and they dropped from first place within the past week or two. And the Oakland athletics are also in a pretty shaky spot. So I could see them 
easily snagging one of those two wild card spots. And they have the talent on paper to be be great. And they've really shown it within this past past month, but it's just a matter of health, really. Like Aaron Judge has been in and out of the lab. So is John Carlos Stanton. Uh Luke Voigt's been struggling. So is DJ LeMayhew. So you just have to wonder, can they keep this clicking together to snag one of those wild card spots? And then come October, anything can happen. So I think they have a really good shot, especially given how some of their other competitors in the wild card are doing. But I think the, the AL East division crown is just a bit too far away at this point. So we're right around the corner for, for uh, excuse me, let me try that again. We're right around the corner for the NFL season and things are, and things coming from the New York Giants camp have not been good to say the least. Three Giants players retired in the span of four days and it has appeared as though it's been a very toxic environment led by Joe Judge. So what do you guys think all this news and rumors have been going around? What does this mean for Joe Judge's future with the organization and the culture he's built? And how do you think it will affect them come this season? Yeah, I think like four players have retired. And uh, Kelvin Benjamin, I think he was technically released, you know, and then he retired. You know, he was arguing with Coach Coach Judge, but I doubt, I doubt if he really saw himself playing on this team you know, after retiring in 2018, you know, so he's gone. So I think people might say that, you know, the training camp is difficult, you know, given that he's disciplining the players by having them do push-ups and running. And they may talk about how these players to retire cause cause a disconnect between the coaching staff and the players. But I don't don't really think the the camp has been, it doesn't seem difficult. And I, I really think this just shows that, uh, Coach Judge really wants this team to make the playoffs and wants to set a high standard for the team who won six games last year and finished second in their division, which exceeded a lot of people's expectations. You know, they did it without Saquon Barkley, who uh, tore his ACL early in the season. And Sterling Shepard, he actually came out and he said he supports uh, Joe Judge's dis- discipline. So. I don't see this as as a negative. I see it more as a positive for players to be motivated to do better in this season. You know, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing either because sometimes the players deserve it. You know, I mean, there was that brawl in practice for what looked like, you know, maybe it was a little hard, but it looked like a pretty routine hit on Corey Clement and Joe, Joe Judge made him run the next practice basically the entire time. I think that's what you got to do if you're a coach. You got to assert your authority because you can't have fights breaking out in practice like that among teammates. You know, you're all one team. So I, I don't think it's necessarily that bad. I think the more concerning thing for Giants fans should be the injuries. Uh, you know, Saquon Barkley is still on that IR. Um, Kenny Galladay, uh, he has a hamstring injury. He, he's out for two to three weeks. and He's not going to be able to get – very well adjusted at training camp after you just signed him for a huge contract. So um, I think the injury should definitely be more concerning at this point than whether or not Joe judges training camp has been too hard because it doesn't seem insanely difficult. Uh, It seems like a pretty normal NFL preseason. And at some points, like you got to do conditioning at some points and sometimes, you know, it's well warranted like that broad. It just can't be happening. I'm going to have to disagree with you guys. So obviously, you know, you're in a big team environment. I mean, there's 70 plus players at this point on the same field and there's going to be disagreements and some stuff may happen, but all the reports coming out with the players retiring 
and this big altercation, especially this early in the camp, it's, it's just not a good sign. And Joe Judge obviously comes from the Bill Belichick, you know, coaching tree, which has been emphasized, you know, disciplinarian kind of being, you know, hard on their players. We obviously know that, but if, if NFL history tells us anything and within the past couple of years, once a coach loses its locker room, it's basically the end for that team for that season. I mean, look at the Browns under Hugh Jackson and Freddie Kitchens a couple of years ago, the Lions under Matt Patricia, the Texans most recently under uh, Bill O'Brien. Once you, you lose the locker room as a head coach, it's just disastrous. And, you know, this could just be some growing pains, like you're saying, and everything will kind of just form together and everything will be fine. But this is something I'd really look, watch out for if I'm a Giants fan, because especially in a NFC East that features a healthy Cowboys team and a Washington team that got better. If, if the, if they're not, if the coaches and if Joe judge and the players aren't clicking, it can be a disastrous season for the G men this season. So in some more, in some more positive news, there've been great reports coming from jets camp. Players have seemed to be endorsing head coach, uh, new head coach, Robert Sala. And after a couple of days of contract holdouts, Zach Wilson has really come in and impressed at camp and has already established a report with uh, fellow rookie, Elijah Moore. Do you guys think that the jets are finally turning it around and just give me a quick like expectation for them this season? Yeah. I, you know, concerning with Elijah Moore and Zach Wilson, I think I, I saw a highlight during a scrimmage, a scrimmage where, Wilson threw like an 80 yard touchdown to Moore. So you can, you can really tell that they're bonding on the field. Uh, I, I saw an interview with Moore. Um, and when you have both rookies connecting, I think it just emphasizes the chemistry for other players. Most important, importantly, the wide receivers, you know, uh, Keelan Cole, Corey Davis. And, you know, after a horrible season of only winning two games, I think they just, had a great off season of revamping this roster. I think this team could be way better. They made a lot of additions to this team. And, you know, as Zach Wilson, who's the anchor of this team right now, I think, you know, they, they're developing players and I think they can really get it going. I think this team is heading in the right direction after, you know, years of mediocrity. Yeah, you know, I, I'm not even a Jets fan and I'm super hopeful for them moving forward because uh, if Wilson and Moore can get it quick, and I think they could do something really special. You know, Moore is so good in that slot. And um, he's got a lot of other offensive weapons around him too, like Corey Davis, Denzel Mims, some of these other guys. You know, they, they could really – they can really run it up too, uh, even like Keelan Cole. So um, I, I'm really excited for the Jets as a whole, not just Moore and uh, Wilson. But, yeah, I think that they – they're finally building their offensive lineup. You know, they didn't do that under Darnold. Wilson actually has a little bit of pocket protection. Um, so, yeah, I'm very excited for this Jets season. I think they should be a lot better. That being said, I don't even know if they're going to be that great in the AFC East just because it's a pretty good division uh, as a whole. You know, I think they're going to be a much better football team, but I think it might take one or two years for them to see the results of that. Yeah, I'm really excited for the Jets. Uh, I mean, they got Zach Wilson, who I really liked as a prospect coming out. They got some protection around him with Elijah Vera Tucker. And if him and Elijah Moore are clicking it, that's great sign for Jets fans and for Jets, you know, for the Jets organization, because chemistry between receivers and quarterbacks is, 
a huge part of, you know, success in an NFL offense. And if you can get that on day one, especially with Elijah Moore's potential as just a weapon in general, I think that's going to be huge. Like you said, Ryan, I mean, the AFC East is just so good with the Bills who just got the set, uh, made the conference championship game last year. The Dolphins were, I think, went 11 and five and the Patriots should just be healthy. And they made some big offseason acquisitions. So I don't think they'll be a great team, but they should be a lot of fun to watch, especially with Zach, that Zach Wilson, Elijah Moore tandem. And I think things can finally start turning around, especially if they get this head coach and this quarterback, right? So the last topic we'll talk about is the Olympics. Uh, uh, The Olympics are concluding tonight. And while there've been some amazing storylines from various different sports, I kind of want to focus and discuss about basketball for both the men's and women's tournaments, obviously with Seton hall being a basketball oriented school. So I think the big storyline for the men's tournament has to be Luka Doncic. I mean, it, he led Slovenia to their first ever Olympics ever, and he won a game, and he was this close. He was this close. He was a point away from making the 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 championship game, but obviously they didn't get that done. He recorded the third triple double in Olympic history, and I just want to get your thoughts on his performance in general and how he carried the Slovenia team with one essentially one other NBA player who isn't even in the league anymore and just a bunch of whoever's no offense to anyone on the Slovenian national team. Yeah. Like you said, you know, Slovenia lost to Australia in the bronze medal game, you know, even though it was their first Olympic semifinals. Um, Luca had a great performance at the Olympics. I think he had like almost 50 points in the opener against Argentina like you say, he's the third player to record a triple-double. So I think this this just shows that Luca's performance, it just shows how strong the international players are becoming in the NBA. You got Jokic, Giannis, and Luca. And I, I hope this is a sneak peek for the performance Luca will have this upcoming season. Yeah, it was incredible watching him play in this Olympics, and I'm I'm really disappointed that they couldn't get by Australia um, because, or sorry, France in, in that semifinal matchup and even Australia, because it would have been dope to see Luca win a medal. Gosh, darn Patty Mills dropping 45 <laughs> in, in the, the bronze medal game. But um, no, it, he, he was incredible this entire Olympics. I mean, uh, I think part of that was due to the fact that he was used to the international rules. Uh, a lot of the NBA players, it looked like they were struggling with some of the physicality to start out with. And, uh, you know, Lucas said it himself, uh, and Dame echoed those his sentiments, saying that it was easier to score uh, in in the NBA than it was internationally. So, I think the fact that he was used to it gave him some advantage, and he and he took full advantage of that. So, um, yeah, great performance from him through just throughout the entire Olympics, and I'm super excited to see what he and the Mavs can do next season. Yeah, and it's it's kind of interesting, Ryan, that you made that point about the scoring easier because I remember when that quote first came out. Was it last year or a couple years ago? I forget when, but people were mocking, saying, "How is it easier to score internationally when you're essentially playing against a bunch of white dudes and you have the NBA and you have like freak athletes like Giannis Antetokounmpo and Bam Adebayo and Anthony Davis?" But no, the rules did make it a bit more challenging, and Luka Doncic seemed like in every situation he's had in his career, he just seemed unfazed. He you know, he carried this Slovenia team, which really had no business of even qualifying the preliminaries to a win and was just so close from getting a medal. And 
I'm really excited for what I'm really excited for what he's going to be doing next season. He's one of my favorite players to watch in the league. He's just so amazing. He manages to do something great every night. So shout out to him, even though they didn't medal, I still think he had an amazing performance and there's he's, he's going to be here for a while. And we all know that. So sticking to the men's tournament now going into the, uh, sorry, now sticking to the men's tournament, the USA obviously won the gold after a bit of scares. I mean, they dropped a, a scrimmage to Nigeria and they lost a, pre, a, qualif- a preliminary game to France. So a lot of people were a bit like e- weary of this team. You know, they, the offense was stagnant. They struggled to score the ball and they were even down by double digits in multiple like tournament games. And what do you guys think of the USA's resilience to overcome these obstacles and, you know, the COVID restrictions and, you know, the physicality rule differences and, still manage to come out on top with maybe one of the worst rosters we've seen since they've allowed professional players in the Olympics. Yeah. Like you said, this team is very resilient and, you know, this team is stacked with talent, Katie Lillard, Drew Holiday. So they didn't lack shooting. They didn't lack, you know, really anything much except for defense. But the one thing that really played them is they weren't really cohesive as a team and, it really showed when they lost their uh, two games. But, you know, as time went on, they started to play as a team and each person had had a role effectively, you know, rather than each person being ball dominant, they, they're they letting the game flow on both sides of the floor. So, you know, KD being the go-to scorer, Holiday, solid defender, Bam Adebayo and Draymond Green, solid defense. So, you know, they, they barely got away with a gold medal. I think they just won by five. But the men's basketball team proved all the doubters wrong, honestly, and came away as the best team in the, in the world. And it's good momentum for the players moving towards the upcoming season. Yeah, I think this whole saga just sort of shows how fickle uh, American basketball fans and, and really the sports media is as a whole because – as soon as they lost that those that early game against France, it was just everyone just <laughs> no one can get a, enough of hating on, on the men's basketball team. And despite all the doubters, I mean, they really just shut them down. You know, it was it was a great performance uh, from them to to really just shut it all shut it all out and prove everyone wrong. Uh, I remember seeing afterwards that uh, KD and Draymond Green were calling out Kendrick Perkins on live for uh, doubting them. And I thought it was well-warranted, well-deserved. You know, they, they, they definitely should be allowed to call out their, their doubters because they quite literally proved them wrong in this tournament. Um, so, yeah, like Kylie said, they, they looked a little selfish in the beginning of the tournament. No one really wanted to play as a team, but they went along and they developed together. Um, the thing with America is they, they have a different team every four seasons. So they've got a, you know, redefine roles every, every four years, pretty much. So they, they got through pains and, and they pulled it out for uh, Team U.S. Yeah, I mean, going into this tournament, I mean, they were just, for at least for some of these players, they were just weeks removed from playing playoff basketball. And a lot of these guys, I think Katie's the only exception, I, or Andre Green. I think they're the only two exceptions where this – Everyone else, I think, was playing their first Olympics. And I, obviously, they've played in, like, FIBA uh, FIBA competitions in, like, U18, U16. But playing in the Olympics just a completely different stage than some of these other 
international tournaments that they may be used to. And like you said, Ryan and Kali, they kind of had to adjust to their roles a bit, you know, players like Damian Lillard and Jason Tatum and KD, you know, they're all seen, they're all the number one guys where they are. And so now they have to like go down the pecking order. Like, okay, I can't take 22 shots a game. I only can take 13. And obviously that's a lot for an NBA player. And you have to incorporate the fact that, you know, the rules are a lot more, the rules emphasize defense more. You can't foul bait as you, you could in the NBA, for example. So, and them losing and the media pressure they got really just built them up because they really need that resilience. They kind of were like acting like, oh, we're the USA. We have the most talent by far. We're just going to steamroll everyone. But that's not the case anymore. International, the international scene's just grown tremendously within the past four years since they last played in the Olympics. And they managed to pull it out. They proved their doubters wrong. Shout out to Chris Milton and Drew Hotty because I saw a stat that they are one of six players or five players to gold medal and win a championship within the same season. And they're the first teammates to do it since Scotty and MJ did it in 96. So they were both huge to the Bucks winning the finals and they were critical pieces for this U.S. Olympic team as well. And they really deserve the praise and they've been working their butts off for the past year and kudos to them. So the final thing we'll talk about is we'll go to the U.S. women's side Shout out Kali, first of all, because I know you've been covering the U.S. women Olympic scene over at WSOU.net. And if you haven't checked out his articles, you should check check them out. But the U.S. got the gold again, dominated in a more convincing fashion than the men's team, winning all their uh, tournament games by 15 plus points. Brianna Stewart of the Seattle Storm earned uh, made all the all Olympic team and took home tournament MVP. Aja Wilson also took home tournament MVP and. I just want to get your guys' thoughts on the team's performance in general and how, you know, they've kind of set the groundwork for really bringing women's basketball into the mainstream with, you know, stars like Brianna Stewart, Diana Taurasi, Sue Bird, Ija Wilson, players like that. Yeah, they have a lot of talent. And, you know, I think we forget how strong this women's basketball team is, especially with a front court like, Asia Wilson, WNBA NBA MVP, Brittany Griner, and Brianna Stewart, not only dominating inside, but outside as well, and dominating on the other side defensively. So although they, they had a tough time finding their stride, you know, losing to uh, Australia and I believe the WNBA All-Stars, I, th- I, I think they've shown that they adjusted well. And, you know, although it didn't really look pretty, you know, they had a lot of turnovers. I think it really showed that they're still the most dominant basketball team in the world. And, you know, shout out to Sue Byrne, Diana Taurasi being the only Olympic basketball players, men and women to have uh, five Olympic gold medals. So that's a, that's a huge dynasty. Honestly, I think they're probably better than the men's team. If you really think about it, they've had a dynasty that long. So yeah, I really liked it. I, I really like covering this team. Yeah, you know, I mean, congrats to them. It, they're just so much bigger than Japan. I almost felt bad for Japan. You know, it, it was like watching like sixth graders play third graders. It felt like with how, how much bigger the USA front court was than the Japanese. And, and Japan didn't even play badly. Uh, so, you know, congrats to them on, on their silver medal, especially because they weren't expected to make it that far in this tournament. But Team USA Women's, you know, 
another one on the trophy cabinet pretty much you know it, it just seems like this team just keeps on staying above the rest of the pack and, and that's something that a lot of people were questioning the men's team would, would do uh this year and, and it never seemed to come into question for the women just because they are that dominant i mean they had a couple of close games early on but it, it never really seemed like it was in question that they were going to win the gold so a huge congrats to them, especially Diana Taurasi and Sue Bird, because five goals in the Olympics in one event, you know, just one event. That That is crazy. That is absolutely ridiculous. 20 years uh, and five goals. So, yeah, huge congrats to the, the whole team and especially those two. Yeah, before I talk about the USA, just shout out Japan real quick. Because, I mean, like you said, Ryan, they weren't really expected to be here at all. They upset two women powerhouses in Belgium and France who – at the time, were ranked top five in FIBA, and Ruri Machida <laughs> had a seventy-two, a seventy-five assists in the three games, which is just, or within the tournament, sorry, within the entire tournament, seventy-five assists, which is just insane to think about. But the team USA, like you said, they dealt with a bit of problems, like gelling, similar to what we saw with the men's team, but they came out top, absolutely dominating. Brianna Stewart in the final game had just a a Draymond Green-esque stat line, 14-14, 5-4, doing it on both sides of the floor. Aja Wilson also added her part, and we talked about Sue Byrne, Diana Taurasi, five gold medals, which in one event is just crazy to think about. But also shout out to Dawn Staley, who I think in all seven or six Olympics she's been involved in, either as a player, assistant coach, or head coach, she's won gold medal in all that. You know, she's one of the best women's head coaches in all basketball down at South Carolina, and I hope maybe she can secure that national championship soon, but shout out to the women's team. They really proved their worth and the, the way they've grown their game in the past couple of seasons and bring it more into the mainstream is just huge. And shout out to them. They showing their dominance once again, really just showing their dominance against the entire rest of the Olympic sport. So that'll do it for this episode, this week's episode of X's opinions. I'm your host, Ryan, Ryan Henry joined alongside Ryan Johnson and Kali Smith come back next week for another episode of X's Opinions where people from WSU Sports discuss the hottest topics in professional sports.